All right, so turn to Exodus chapter 14. We're going to go through the um, children of Israel and the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, I'm sure most of you guys have already read this story, right? And um, so you know that Israel's passing through the Red Sea is probably one of the most um, exciting events recorded in the New Testament. A couple of movies made of it, probably not too accurate as we're going to see tonight, especially with that last one that kind of came out. But, um, you know, have you guys ever found yourself in a desperate situation? Have you ever found yourself like painted in a corner? Um, it didn't seem like there was any way out. Um, you felt like you were between a rock and a hard place. You know, maybe you're going through financial troubles, marriage issues, relationship issues tonight. Um, you know, health issues. You know, your faith is not where it used to be. Your walk's really not where it used to be. Or you're just kind of feeling hopeless. So these are some of the things that the children of Israel were going through, um, and we're going to look at that tonight. So we see here in Exodus 14 that um, they have been freed from slavery, slavery, and they're running for their lives. Um, they find themselves in a desperate situation, and they're trapped with nowhere to turn. And there seems like there's no way out. They're caught. Um, they're between Pharaoh and the Red Sea. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And there's going to be times in our life where we're going to be like the children of Israel. We're going to face our own Red Sea. We're going to face our own pharaohs. You know, President Abraham Lincoln was known as the great emancipator because he signed in 1863 the Emancipa Emancipation Proclamation freeing 3.1 million slaves that had been enslaved, unfortunately, as a part of our, our nation's history. Lincoln said that when he signed that document, his hand actually trembled because he knew of its importance. 3,300 years ago, God emancipated two to three million of his people. He, he set free from bondage in Egypt to go to a land that he wanted to give them. Now, the picture of Egypt and slavery is a picture of how sin enslaves us. Every human being is born into this world as a slave of sin that needs to be emancipated and set free. And God is that great emancipator. Now, listen to Paul, what Paul says in Romans 6.17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now, most people pride themselves in being free. You know, they're free moral agents, free thinkers, the captain of their own ship. I mean, we kind of know these kind of individuals because some of us were like that. We kind of thought that we could make our own destiny. So it was really odd that the Jews... 2,000 years ago, kind of, uh, you know, felt the same way. When in John chapter 8, listen to this, Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And the Jews immediately retorted and said, we've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say you'll know the truth and the truth will set us free? Now, I've always found their statement rather interesting. Had they forgotten what they celebrate with Passover? Had they forgotten that they were slaves in Egypt as a nation? Now, maybe they rationalized and said, and maybe they meant that their present generation had never been slaves to anyone. But there again, had they forgotten that they were under the rule of Rome, that Rome was in charge of everything, Jerusalem, their activities, they were still in, slaves, uh, in slavery. You know, I really don't know what they meant, but as soon as they said that, Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So, 
you're a slave of either unrighteousness or you are a slave of righteousness. It's either one or the other. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said, Once you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, and you were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So what do I mean when I say we're slaves of one or the other, righteousness or unrighteousness? Well, you know, many of us here, many of us guys have a job, we work hard, right? But we know people that are slave to their job, right? They're driven by it. That's the only thing that matters in the morning. You can be a slave to what you own or what you don't own. You don't have it, but you're going to get it. And you're going to be a slave to that whole process of getting it. You can be a slave to opinions of other people. You'll do anything to win their favor. We can be slaves to habits, whatever form or shape that takes. I heard about a man years ago in downtown L.A. who wore a, a sandwich board sign. You guys know what those are? And he was, a, he was trying to witness on the streets of L.A. And on the front part of the sign, it read, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And when he would turn around on the backside, it said, whose slave are you? It's a good question. I would hope that all of us here tonight are slaves of Jesus Christ, right? Because Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters. You will love one, hate the other. You will hold on to the other one or despise the other. Now, listen carefully. Here's where we kind of get into redemption. And there's a reason why I'm going down this path, because you'll see that this is the same path that the children of Israel had to go, to, go down. Now, even people who have been redeemed have problems. Even us as believers have issues, have things that we struggle with even after we've been saved, Right? Let's say I have a thousand acres of land that you want to buy from me. And I tell you, um, okay, I'll sell it to you. But I just want a few acres. Okay, I just want a few acres for myself. I just want to hold back a few. You agree to it. You say, all right, that's fine. We agree to terms. And the terms are that the acreage that I want is in the middle of that land. Okay, And you say, that's fine. And so we work out the deal. You buy it. Now, I own that portion of land that's in the middle of your property now, okay? So basically, think of it as a donut. You guys that had donuts today, remember the big donut you had? I own the one in the middle, okay? I got the donut hole, all right? So, but by most laws, the law basically will say that um, it would give me permission to build an access road in order for me to access that property, okay? Are you following me so far? All right? So that's how... Satan works. That's how the devil works in our life. If he knows that you're going to give your life to Jesus Christ, if he knows that you're going to follow Jesus Christ, he's like, okay, all right, okay, okay. Go ahead, give your life to Jesus Christ. But just keep one little portion of your, for yourself. Just keep a little bit for yourself. So you, you keep that to yourself. You don't give it over to the Lord. And the devil, as you've already figured out, loves to get around closets, right? So he builds an access road just so that he can tempt you, so that he can throw things in your mind, so that he can distract you. So he builds an access road, and he's trying to ruin that redemption that God had for you in your life. 
Now, you'll discover as we go on in this redemptive plot in Exodus that the children of Israel are redeemed out of Egypt, okay? They've been taken out of Egypt, and yet the Egypt hasn't been taken out of them, okay? You follow? They want to go back. Now, as I read this story, I found myself asking, have you forgotten what your life was like? Have you really forgotten the enslavement, the beatings, the torture, you know, your, your, your family's killed. I mean, have you forgotten all of that? So let's read Exodus 14, 1 through 4. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before Peharoth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon, and you shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the, by the land, and the wilderness has closed them in. And then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all of his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So in verses 1 through 4, we see God changing Israel's course of direction. Now, the nation moves into the wilderness under, under the Lord's direction. And this is also the exact place where geographically the Red Sea is before them. Um, the mountains are kind of like all around them. And soon the Egyptian army is going to be right behind them. So they're kind of like stuck in that donut hole. Okay? They have nowhere else to go. Now, as the nation leaves Egypt, Pharaoh sends spies to follow, on, uh, follow up on them and report back location and everything else that he can, uh, he can find out on them. And so the Lord tells Israel, even as they begin the journey, that, hey, Pharaoh's going to have his eyes on you. Pharaoh's going to be watching you. And what he sees will convince him that Israel is lost and trapped and vulnerable. Now, we're going to see a little bit later on that this is actually by design. But so you might be asking yourselves, okay, you know, why would God lead his people into a trap? If you read this for the first time, you're like, okay, I, I don't get this. Then you start thinking, okay, has God ever led me down a road that I felt was a trap? Okay. But just keep in mind that God has a plan for everything. He has a purpose for everything. And we're going to see that. So in verse 4, it says, you know, the Lord reveals to Moses that Pharaoh's perception is intentionally created by God to cause Pharaoh to do what? To chase after Israel, okay? And remember, Pharaoh thought that he had a great opportunity here. Now, in fact, the Lord's not finished hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, if you guys are like me, you read this quite a few different times, and you're like, how many times is is God going to allow Pharaoh to harden his heart? And how many times is Pharaoh going to continue to harden his heart? I mean, talk about a, a rock-hard heart. I mean, this guy was, I don't know if I've ever heard anything, anything this hard, but it, it was pretty hard. So once again, Pharaoh thinks he can defeat Israel and God with his army. But the Lord is using Pharaoh's pride to do a couple things. One, he's going to glorify himself, and he also wants to display his power not only to the children of Israel, but he wants to display his power to Egypt. Now, remember what the Lord told Moses in the, in the very beginning concerning Pharaoh. The Lord raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose, for displaying his power in Egypt and to be defeated by God. Now, the Lord knows everything, right? Would you guys agree with me? So he knew what was about to happen. Still, he led his people into the exact position where a crisis would occur. We all face crisis in our life. And uh, he even told them in advance that Pharaoh 
is going to be attacking you. He's going to be chasing you. Okay? So this is a God-appointed problem. This is a God-appointed issue. Now, if you recall, he did the same thing to his disciples in the New Testament. After feeding the 5,000, Jesus did this. Matthew 14, 22 says, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Now, midway through that little sea journey, guess what? A storm hits. And it says in 1424, but the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary, meaning it was pretty bad. So Jesus put those men in the exact same place where that fierce weather would intersect with that boat. Why? Why do you think? Probably to illustrate the fact that in our life, in our, in our life as a believer, that God is in control. We constantly need to be reminded. I need to be reminded constantly that God is in control of everything. And that he can use even these trials and these storms in our lives to bring himself glory and to teach us some extremely valuable uh, faith-building lessons. Now, I'm not saying that all of our problems are you know, caused by God. I think that a lot of them are caused by ourselves. You know, we're, we're stubborn. We're stiff-necked. You know, we're, you know, we still have Egypt in us. Okay? Now, in these first verses of Exodus 14, we're given, you know, some places, some numerous places to indicate the place where Israel camped in the desert and after leaving Egypt. But the location of these places um, are a mystery to, to us today. Now, archaeologically, some of them are being discovered. However, um, there's still a lot of unknowns. So even if you looked in the back of your Bible and you looked at a map, chances are it might not be 100% accurate. It might, it might be a little bit off. So is it possible to really figure out where exactly this all happened, where the crossing happened, um, just based on Scripture alone? Maybe. So let's kind of take a look at some of those geographic landmarks, okay, and the boundaries. First, they're moving into the wilderness, okay? And this refers to the Sinai Peninsula. The event happened east of Egypt, next to the Red Sea, and opposite some location on the opposite side of the sea. Now, if we're, look, if we're going to look at a map of geography of the Sinai Peninsula, we could probably narrow down some of those possibilities. The Sinai Peninsula has the Red Sea on either side. So if you were to look at your map and you look at that V, that's what we're talking about. You've got two gulfs on each side and you've got this peninsula that kind of comes down, looks like a V. So... The Sinai Peninsula has the Red Sea on either side, and we know that Israel is, they're fleeing, okay? They're fleeing from Egypt. So they must be traveling eastward, away from Egypt. So it makes no sense to assume they crossed the Red Sea in a westwardly fashion, because that would send them back where? That sent them back to Egypt, right? So some people have suggested that Israel was backed up against another body of water. We've heard all kinds of things. It was a giant lake. It was the Sea of Reeds. It was a marshland. It was, you know, whatever. But these are not consistent with what Scripture says. The Hebrew words for the Red Sea is Yam Sup. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but, um, but it's not translated Reed Sea, despite sounding very similar in English, but it's not. Now, the description of the crossing itself also doesn't fit with a marshy body of water, like the Reed Sea or similar locations. So we're talking about the depths of the Red Sea, okay? 
So we're either talking about the Gulf of the Suez or the Gulf of Aqaba. And in your map, you'll see those two gulfs on each side. In 1 Kings 9.26, we read, King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Azion Gebur, which is near Aloth on the shore of the Red Sea or Yam Sup in the land of Edom. Okay, so even now Solomon has given us a little bit more as far as geographic landmarks. But geographers know that Aloth as a port at the northernmost end of the Gulf of Aqaba. Okay? So if Israel was wandering to a point where they were backed up against the sea and assuming they were attempting to move east away from Egypt, that really only leaves two locations or two spots uh, where they could be. Either they were trapped on the western side of the Gulf of the Suez or on the western side of the Gulf of Aqaba. Okay? So let's consider the possibility that they crossed from the western side of the Suez. Could the Red Sea crossing have been from the western bank to the eastern bank of the Suez? If you're looking at your map, could it, is it possible? Well, there's two, there's two problems with where that could be or, or how this could be a possibility. First, Israel wouldn't be wandering any longer in the wilderness. Okay? So that creates a little bit of an issue, right? They'd still be what? Sojourning in Egypt. It's not what Scripture tells us. So secondly, if they were to cross the Red Sea at the Gulf of Suez, they would still have been in Egypt when they made it to the other side. So basically, they're going away from Egypt back into Egypt. So it doesn't really make sense. Now, remember that the Egyptians controlled the Sinai Peninsula much like they do today. So crossing from the western side of the Suez to the eastern side would have left Israel still in Egypt. So this leaves us with only one likely location, the western side of the Gulf of Aqaba. It's in the wilderness, it's not in Egypt, and it's hemmed in or it's pinned in against the Red Sea. This is exactly what Scripture tells us, right? And it provides an escape for the crossing of the Red Sea from the west to the east away from Egypt. Now, with this conclusion comes an important implication. If the nation crossed the Red Sea at the Gulf of Aqaba, then it means that Mount Sinai is not in the Sinai Peninsula. It would be located in present-day Saudi Arabia. Okay? Now, remember back in Exodus chapter 3 concerning the location of this mountain? Mount Sinai is the same mountain where Moses first heard from the Lord and the burning bush, right? It's also called Mount Horeb. And it's said to be located on the western side of Midian near the Red Sea. Now, Moses spent 40 years here, so you, you would think that he would know this area very, very well, right? Now, looking at a map, ancient Midian is located on the east of the Gulf of Aqaba. Therefore, it, it looks like, and it seems, that the biblical text here really does support the crossing and the children of the crossing of the Red Sea at this gulf. Listen to Paul's description of the mountain of Moses from Galatians 4, 24-25. He says, this is, allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So Paul says that Mount Sinai is located in Arabia, which is today modern-day Saudi Arabia. And the land of Arabia has always been identified um, as, um, as Arabia. So it's, it's, it's interesting that Arabia, the last part of that word, has always kept its meaning 
Um, so some of these clues have been there for a long time. I don't know that we've really kind of looked at them. Now, as Pharaoh's spies report back to the back to the Israelites' uh, position, and that they go back to Pharaoh and says, "Hey, listen, he's they've left the trade route. Um, they're headed south." Pharaoh thought, "Okay, you know what? Here's my opportunity." So he knew that there was no escape from the southern tip of the Sinai since the Red Sea prevented the Jews from proceeding any further. And once they entered the steep mountain terrain of the Sinai, they were going to lose the ability to maneuver freely. You've got to remember, there's two to three million Jews. So making an about-face or a U-turn is really not going to happen. So they're kind of like rats in a maze, right? They've got nowhere else to go, and they're kind of trapped. Now, from that point, Pharaoh would only have to drive his chariots into the mountains and let the mountains kind of contain or hold the Jews there until his army came and just crushed them. So you can see why he was salivating. You can see why he was just like, this is it. I've got them. But this is exactly what God intended for Pharaoh, that he would lead a charge against Israel. Now let's look at uh, verses 5 through 9. and says, Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. And also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. And so the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of the Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Piharoth before Baal-Zephon. So we see here that God hardens again Pharaoh's heart, but now notice that the people are joining in. Their hearts are now becoming hardened as well. Egypt has lost its slave workforce, free labor, and the work of building all those monuments and pyramids and everything uh, in Egypt were now going to have to be done by um, the people themselves. So Pharaoh is getting a little upset. He's like, oh, wait a second. You know what? That's a lot of money, free labor. I'm not going to let this happen. So really, it's that pride that's welling up in him again, saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to allow this to happen. So what does he do? He readies his chariot and 600 more of his army, and they chase after Israel. Now, the fact that he remedies, or remedies, he readies his, his own personal chariot and his own people could mean that this guy's really ticked off now. And he's not only really ticked off, but this is now personal. You had to remember, there's, there's a long history between Moses and Pharaoh, right? So the chariots of the 18th century dynasty were feared throughout the entire ancient world. So the children of Israel were looking at extremely fast and nimble uh, chariots that would enable a warrior to quickly overtake an adversary dodge any attack, turn quickly, uh, and then come back around for a second pass. So if they miss you the first time, they weren't going to miss you the second time. Now, usually there were three warriors on a chariot. You got one that's driving and two that are offensive, okay? Meaning they don't smell bad. Well, they probably do, but they are, you know... (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get... Okay, anyway, so they, they're, they're, they're shooting arrows and spears and all kinds of stuff, right? Let's just leave it at that. Um, but in modern times, if we were to think about it in our terms, these guys were like the Abram tanks of the day uh, and were intimidating, and they were feared by many. 
you know, those of us that remember the 1991 Persian Gulf War, we have images in our mind of these, these Abram tanks going through and just ripping through, you know, all of the enemies that the U.S. had before them, right? It's kind of the same picture here. So, um, so at this point, Israel's already camped by the edge of the Red Sea. And in verse 9, we're told that the Egyptian army overtakes Israel by the sea, and they're encamped, and they're trapped by the sea and by the mountains. So, uh, again, nowhere to go. Um, now, all this reminds me of, uh, of that old TV show, Get Smart. Do you guys remember that show? The, uh, the, the, the original one, right, with Don Adams? You know, he played Agent 86, Maxwell Smart. Well, he would always find himself in these kind of situations, right? You know, where chaos, the evil organization, you know, was, has him pinned in. And, and then what was the thing he would do? He would call control, right? He'd take his shoe off and he'd, uh, his shoe phone and say, you know, chief, I got them right where I want them. You guys remember that? This is exactly what Pharaoh's thinking. Hey, I got them exactly where I want them. But it was the Lord that led them to a place where they have no choice but to what? But to trust him, okay? And he used them as bait so that Pharaoh would go after them and chase them. And guys, it seems that sometimes, I don't know what situations you're going through tonight and things that you're going through at home or whatever, but you know, we find ourselves in a place that... Um, Sometimes it seems like it's a dead end, like we have nowhere to go, we have nowhere to turn. It's not because God is not leading you, he is. It's a place that's designed to show us, to show me, that he alone is Lord, and he alone can see us through the issues and the trials and the things that we're going through. It's not that he doesn't understand, but there's a greater purpose. But you follow him because of who he is, not what he's doing for you, right? So Pharaoh not only chased the Israelites, he overtook them, he found them, he caught them, and they hemmed them in, he hemmed them into a corner. The word overtook in Hebrew means that he reached them. So literally, he is within graphs of just really just doing, having his way with them. And then sometimes we have to understand that the Lord allows this kind of trouble in our life for a reason. He allows it to happen, and he, and he puts us, he puts his people in these places right in the middle of it, for a reason. But we also have to remember that no weapon formed against us will prosper, right? But when we're not thinking like that, we just kind of think that the end is in sight. So when you read Exodus 14, it doesn't seem like it's real, right? It just, it, it seems too incredibly impossible for it to happen, right? You guys feel that way or am I the only one that feels that way? It just seems, it just, uh, it just doesn't seem real. So I heard a story about a boy in a Sunday school class. It was his first time in church. His mom asked, well, how was church today? And he said, that was all right. Well, what did you learn? And he says, well, mom, my teacher told us a story about Moses who went behind enemy lines and was sent by God, I guess, to rescue the Israelites from jail. Then he got to the Red Sea and there's this huge problem. So what he did is he called in his army and his corps of engineers to build a bridge so that the children of Israel could walk across safely. And then he gets on his walkie-talkie and he radios his headquarters to send reinforcements in. They bring bombers in and when the Egyptians were on the same bridge, 
They bombed him and they took him out. And mom said, just looked at her little boy, curious, and said, are you sure that's what the teacher told you in Sunday school? And he said, no, mom, but if I told you what really happened, you would never believe it. <laughs> so let's look at uh, verses 10 to 14. And when, Abr- and when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And so they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. And the Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. So Israel was in trouble now. To the east was the sea, the south and the west were the mountains, and the north was blocked in by Pharaoh's uh, armies. Now, in a sign of things to come, the people of Israel began to complain to Moses at the first sight of the approaching Egyptian army. Why did they complain? Because they were afraid. They were scared. Um, we certainly can't blame them when they see something like 600 chariots, or in our, in our case, you see 600 Abram tanks coming at you, and you've got a pistol and maybe a rifle. I mean, they have a lot to be scared of. So they see on the horizon dust rising because you've got the armies coming after them. But remember, they've seen the power already of God. They've already seen, um, like no one has ever seen before, what God can actually do. So follow me here. They cried out to God for a leader, and God gives them Moses and Aaron, right? They witnessed 10 miraculous judgments on Egypt on their behalf. They were spared, and they're still forgetting who they're, who they're complaining against, right? And then they saw a pillar of fire by, by night and a cloud by day to lead them. They actually are, are losing sight of who God is. They're losing sight of the great I am. Sounds familiar. I mean, sometimes, you know, things can get a little dicey for us and we forget, you know, who God really is. He's not God that we come to on uh, Sunday mornings or Tuesday nights or, or Thursday nights. You know, he, he's all-powerful. In Numbers 13 and 14, Moses sends out 12 men to spy out on the land. You guys remember the story? Uh, Ten come back with a bad report. Two come back. You know, Joshua and Caleb come back with a good report. And the rest go, you know what? We can't do this. Um, There's giants in the land. Um, We're going to get killed. Joshua and Caleb said, oh, man, let's go. Let's roll. Let's do this. Because the Lord has given us the land. They were the only two that remembered that God's promise was, Hey, I'm going to give you the land. It's, it's pretty straightforward. So why the two reports? Why do we have the account of the two reports? Well, here it is. Joshua and Caleb saw a big God and little giants versus the other two, other 10 guys came in and they saw what? They saw big giants and a little God. 
So Joshua and Caleb saw with eyes of faith that God was bigger. God was bigger than what they could see with their visible eyes. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So God promised the children of Israel, you're going to worship me on Mount Sinai. Well, if God promised that they would leave Egypt and worship him at Mount Sinai, how could he leave them in the wilderness? How could he leave them at the hand of Pharaoh to die? They had forgotten who God was. They had forgotten what God had promised them. So, the way that uh, Israel responded is in 14.10, and with danger all around them, they did two simple things. So, the first thing they did was they cried unto the Lord. So, what did they do? They prayed. They got down on their knees. They prayed. The verb there, cried out in Hebrew, is tzasak. I can't really pronounce it. But it means they called out for help or to gather together, and they made an outcry, literally the, the root verb there means to shriek. So you can imagine that these people are freaked out. They're crying, Lord, help me. We've all been in those situations, right? And that's where they're at. And then secondly, they, they looked. It says, notice that we have really two looks here uh, in this verse. The Jews looked at the enemy, okay? So they saw this imposing force coming towards them. The children of Israel, it says that the children of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And then it says that they looked towards the Lord, or they looked at the Lord. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. That's the right way to do things, right? When we get into a situation, the first thing we're going to do is probably get freaked out. But we really should remember, hey, let's just pray. Let's just talk to the Lord. He already sees it. He already knows it. He already knows what's going on. Let's not forget who our God is, right? So Israel was fearful. They still prayed. They looked to the Lord. And so we shouldn't allow those fears to scare us away from our best friend, the guy that can really help us, right? And in this case, it's God himself that can really go before us. We have to do what the psalmist did in Psalm 56.3. It says, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Now, another thing to expect when problems come is found in verses 11 and 12, and that is there's going to be turmoil. There's going to be dissension from within, from within the ranks. Seldom does a problem come just as a single unit of trouble. Have you guys ever noticed that? that like, I'll give you an example. When I was away for the last two weeks, I had uh, a leaky den, and then two days after that, my wife calls me that one of our dogs was at the vet dying, and it's just, it's always something, all these trials, all these things, are, there's always more than one that happens. And in this case, there was more than one. Sometimes there's triplets, you know, I don't mean triplets like kids, but I mean, there's all kinds of problems that come, but, you know, we just have to deal with it. We just have to depend on the Lord to kind of help see us through it. So in verse 11, it says that, um, you know, it shows that they were um, unhappy. Okay, so. They can't figure out how they're going to get out of this. And so they're not really happy campers. Now, think about this. Do you, do you get the pun of the sarcasm here? Egypt is known for what? They're known for their pyramids, right? Um, and what are those pyramids? They're tombs, right? They're crypts. 
the Egyptians were consumed with the afterlife and there were burial places all over the place. So they say to Moses, hey, did you lead us out of here because there wasn't enough room to bury us in Egypt? That's what I'm saying. Do you understand the sarcasm here? So they're not only questioning the actions of Moses, but also Moses' motivation as well. They say, why have you dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Hey, Moses, did you get some kickback on bringing us out of Egypt? You know, like, are you like in the body bag business? So they're really getting sarcastic and they're really unhappy campers, which kind of leads to a little bitterness on, on their part. In verse 12, you know, they now remind Moses that they told him back, what they told him back in chapter 5. They just wanted him to leave them alone. They're saying, man, you know what? I never signed up for this. Um, I never wanted to follow God anyway. And now that you have me doing it, it's kind of not working out the way that uh, you promised. So I think it's better to be a slave to the world and, and uh, than to be miserable in this weird place is basically what they're telling him. Okay? Sounds familiar? <laughs> it does. I mean, we're all going to be like those Israelites at some point in our life. We're going to be unaf- afraid. We're going to be unhappy um, and even bitter at times. But, you know, God is patient with us. God is extremely patient with us. I mean, the sad fact is that they've seen the hand of the Lord do these miraculous signs and they resort back to the Egypt that's within within them. They, They resort back to their flesh. So in verses 13 and 14, we're told, we're told words the, word had, the Lord had with Moses share with Israel in light of their doubt. Now, if I was Moses hearing these complaints after God's leading them, I would have resigned on the spot. I would have said, look, God, you know what? These are your kids. You deal with them. I'm going to like swim across the Red Sea on my own. And if I drown, at least I don't have to listen to them for 40 years, right? But... Moses didn't handle it that way. What he did is he gave them four clear instructions on how to handle their crisis of doubt and unbelief. Here's what he did, or what he told them. He says, first, he said, do not be afraid. Fear will either energize or it'll paralyze us. But either way, it can be destructive, right? So the first thing Moses tells them is don't react, but rather respond. Don't react to the wave of emotionalism. Don't give in to the desire to react to the fear. So it appears by the next statement that Moses, that Moses makes that their reaction was going to be to get out of town and run because he says, stand still. Now, this is the Lord's answer to you and I when we face the trials and the crisis in our life. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. So fear will cause you to retreat or advance. Impatience will tell us that um, we should do it like right now. Presumption says, hey, you know, um, let's do it right now before it's time. Before, you know, so we're going to go before God tells us to move. But faith says, stand. And while we're standing, what are we going to do? We're going to be still. Because what God is teaching us is, hey, I've got this under control. Be patient. Just wait. Be still. How many of you guys have kids here and you tell your kids, hey, be still. Cut it out. It's the same thing that God's telling the the people and that he tells us. Paul, writing to the church of Ephesus about spiritual warfare in chapter 6, tells them four times in four verses to stand. So all God ever asks us to do when we face trials or difficult times is just to stand. 
on Jesus' victory on the cross, knowing that he understands what's going on. He understands the outcome. He knows that um, whether we are going to live or die, he understands that it's, there's a reason for it, right? And so as believers, we shouldn't fear the inevitable. We shouldn't fear that at some day we're going to go home to be with him, right? And so we should just learn to just stand still. Now, in verse 14, that's exactly what Moses is telling him. He's like, hey, listen, just stand still because why? Because the Lord's going to fight this battle for you, whatever that battle is. The battle belongs to the Lord. Now he tells them, look up, okay? He tells them that now they're supposed to do something, and it's look up. And what is it that he wants them to look up to see? That the salvation of the Lord is near. Now, these verses are interesting in the Hebrew. It says, the word salvation is the Hebrew equivalent for the name of Jesus, Yeshua. And Lord here is the word Jehovah. So it says, see the Jesus of God. Man, is that cool? I mean, think about it. He's telling them, see the Jesus of God. Don't go out on your own strength. Don't do it in your own might. Instead, look for Jesus, your salvation, because he is God. Next thing he tells them is be quiet. Now, he's telling this because they're complaining. They're complaining about their troubles. They're complaining about what's going on. They're complaining. All they've done is complain. And all complaining does for us as believers is shows the lack of trust that we have in the Lord, right? Now, before moving at all, the first thing they're going to do is be quiet. Just stand still. Now, how many times have, have you and I talked ourselves out of God, you know, doing something in our life? Because we're just, we're, we're constantly talking. We're constantly just, we, we just can't stand still. Whether it's emotionally, it's spiritually, whatever it is, we just can't stand still. You know, we all know people that say, you know what, I just can't stand still. I got to be doing something. In this case, God's saying, listen, I'm teaching you something here. I want you to be still because if you're not still, then I can't work. You're not trusting me. So it also says, it also says that, um, you know, in order to, to do this, it's good, we're going to hold our peace. So why, why does he say, you know, to hold our peace? Because the Lord wants to fight that battle for you. He wants to fight the trial for you. If he wanted us to do it, he would have made us, you know, super Christians, right? Without a cape and everything else. But he wants to fight this battle for us. It's, it's out of love that he's like, listen, hey, I don't want you to have to go through this. Let me do it. Just follow me. Rest in me. Let me just carry you. I can do this. Trust me. So the verb here, fight, means to go to war. And three times in the King James Version, um, it has the idea of devouring or eating something. So you get the picture that not only does God want to fight, he just wants to tear this problem up. He wants to do away with it. It may not be the way that you think or that you want, but he's going to do away with it, right? He wants to fight for us. Now, let's look at the last passage here, 15 through 31. And it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians 
and they will follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all of his army, his chariots and his horsemen. And then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went before them and stood behind them. And so it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. And so the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen and all of the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Now, though this text doesn't record Moses words to the Lord, we can tell by the Lord's response in verse 15 that Moses appeals to God for help. So he goes, he's got these people complaining. He tells them, be still, stand still, be quiet. He tries to encourage them. And then he goes and he, he prays to the Lord and has his own gripe session with God. So again, we talked a little bit about the chariots but it doesn't take much to imagine what Israel must be feeling with this entire army of 600 chariots and men and horsemen all placed at the mouth of this valley. It must have been a terrifying sight. So you can't really blame Moses for just, you know, going and complaining to the Lord like, hey, you know what? I'm getting all this flack now from your people. You know, I'm doing what you're asking me to do. But yet, you know, I can't please them. And it must have looked as though Pharaoh was going hunting for fish in a barrel. It was going to be easy for him. And anyone can see an ambush, and Pharaoh clearly thought he was going to have his revenge on the children of Israel. He must have thought, you know what? I have them right where I want them, not knowing that it was really God that was putting Pharaoh in this exact position, that this is exactly where God had him for a reason. Now, for all of Moses' faith and pep talk, he was just, as man, just a man as well. And as soon as he's done talking to Israel for God, you know, he talks to God. Now, 
He goes and he prays. Now, that's a normal thing, right, guys? You know, we, we pray constantly all day long, especially when we get into trial or we have a fight with our wife or whatever, bosses kind of like on us. We go to the Lord and we just kind of like, okay, Lord, just help me. Give me, you know, you know, give me peace, you know, give me the right words, whatever we pray, right? But, you know, normally that's what we do. But evidently, he was having this gripe session. So the Lord says to him, why are you crying to me? Get going, okay? Now, there's a time for prayer and there's a time for seeking the Lord. But after, there's a time to act on it. Now, I told you guys earlier that I came in from Australia yesterday. My wife and I have been praying to the Lord because my company wants to move me to Australia for a couple of years, okay? It's a big move. And so since last October, all we've been doing is kind of waiting on the Lord and praying. Um, we've talked about what needs to be you know, talked about. We've gone through all the things that we need to go through, and we're still waiting. You know, um, We're waiting for all kinds of stuff to happen. And um, we're just waiting for God to say, okay, it's time. Move forward. We're waiting for those doors to completely open. Now, I don't know how he's going to deal with all the things that we've got to go through, but I know that he's going to handle it. Because if I try to do it on my own, it's daunting, the amount of things that we have to do to enter another country. And so, as a young believer, I remember I remember a pastor saying, I don't remember if he was teaching or what he said, but I do remember that he said that the two most important words in the Christian life is trust and obey. And for those of you in the children's ministry, there's a song, right? Trust and obey for there's no other way. And uh, there you go, to be happy in Jesus, right? So we have to trust and obey. Now, if you recall, Paul, the apostle, was in a dilemma. He didn't know where to go to preach. And he was kind of asking the Lord. He was praying um, because he really had this desire to preach the word of God. And Holy Spirit said no to every place he wanted to go. So he waited. I really think he was probably falling asleep, but, you know, he probably waited. And then in Acts chapter 16, verse 9, it says this, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And then later it's just said that he was obedient to that heavenly vision in Acts 26, 19. So in spite of Moses' lack of faith, God graciously responds to his cry for help. He tells Moses to raise his staff, stretch out his hand over the sea, to divide the water, making it possible for the Israelites to pass on dry ground. That was verse 16. And then in verse 17 and 18, God tells Moses, the Egyptians are going to enter the sea right behind you. This will result in their destruction. They're going to be done. You're going to see them no more. And then the nation of Israel, Israel uh, and the nation of Egypt will know for certain that God alone is Lord through this event in verse 18. So why is it that the most memorable scene in the scripture revolve around great displays of God's power through water? Have you guys ever thought about that? I mean, think about it. You've got Noah. Um, you've got Jonah. You've got Elijah. Uh, you've got Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. But none compared to this event right here, right? It's not diminishing... Jesus walking on the water, the storm, or anything like that. But, I mean, this is extreme power. Now, in verse 19 and 20, we're told that God led, he guided them, and he protected the Israelites. It says, the angel of the Lord manifested in the pillar of cloud 
He moved from in front of the Israelites to become their rear guard. So think about it. He stood between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And in verse 19, look at this. It says, the Lord surrounded them. There is no way that God's going to let anything happen to Israel, right? He's going to protect them from that advancing army. And the pillar brought light for the Israelites, enabling them to see as they passed through the sea, maybe preventing the Egyptians from seeing the, the sea for themselves. We don't really know. We're not really told. But, you know, it's interesting that God provided a light. He provided a path. He provided a way for the Israelites to see. It's very similar to us in Psalm 119, 105. It says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's always going to show us a way. Always. Now, the phrase, the angel of the Lord, is the pre-incarnation reference to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Isaiah 63, 9, it says, look, um, it says, um, in all their affliction, he, our God, was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them, and he bare them, and he carried them all the days of old. Guys, when these problems that we're going to face come, remember, remember the angel of his presence is always there with us. Now, in verse 21, Moses did as he was instructed, stretching forth his hand over the sea. This brought about a strong east wind, which drove back the sea all night long, even turning the seabed to dry ground. And this allowed the Israelites to quickly pass through the sea with their goods. They probably had carts. They probably had things that they were pulling along, along with animals and things like that. Imagine the faith that it took, you know, for the Israelites to walk into the Red Sea. They're going to see the same thing that the Egyptians saw, right? They see these huge columns of water on either side. They see dry land, but they're like, I'm not sure I should be walking in this. It took a lot of faith. Now, it's possible as they walked through the sea, they saw the sea piled up on the walls on both sides of them. And they probably thought, you know what? Um, you know, Moses has really gone off his rocker because at any time, this wind's going to stop and what's going to happen? Okay. There was an interesting article concerning the possibility of the parting of the Red Sea in the LA Times, uh, March of 1992. It was titled, The Research Supports the Bible's Account of the Red Sea Parting. And it goes on to say, because of the peculiar geography of the northern end of the Red Sea, researchers report Sunday in the Bulletin of the American Meteor Meteorological Society that a moderate wind blowing constantly for about 10 hours could have caused the sea to recede about one mile and the water level to drop by 10 feet, leaving dry land in the area where many biblical scholars believe the crossing occurred. And don't you just love when science actually catches up with the Bible? Now, when I was studying for this, I came across this model um, that they were describing where exactly the crossing occurred. If they dried up the entire Red Sea, there are, there are huge valleys that were too steep for the children of Israel to actually traverse. But in the middle, there's a pathway. There's a, there's a pathway. And that's the pathway they think, the children of Israel, that God led them through, that exact pathway. So for me, the parting of the Red Sea or the Israel's passing through it is not hard to believe. What's hard to believe 
is the fact that the Egyptians followed them. I mean, they fought, I mean, think about it. It's hard for me to believe that they're seeing these pillars, these walls forming, and they're going to go and follow them. I, I, just, I don't get it. I mean, this is a well-trained army. Um, they know better to kind of plunge into an ambush, right? For those of you guys who are in the military, you're not going to do that. That's, that's, uh, that's suicide. Whenever an army is faced with its enemy ahead and barriers on both sides, there's a serious concern of being trapped, right? Even worse, if you see the Red Sea parted by the God of your adversary, um, why would you get in the water knowing that you're the one that's trying to kill them and he's the one that's defending them? Doesn't, I don't get it. But Now, there's two possible explanations, and both of them are, are really out there. They're incredible. The one is that the Egyptians entered the sea without even knowing it. Okay? Now, first, we're not told anywhere that the Egyptians knew that they were entering the sea. We're told they entered the sea in verse 23. Secondly, the time of the passing through the sea was both for the Israelites and the Egyptians was late at night. So maybe they didn't see the water. Okay? Third, the pillar, which gave light to the Israelites, promoted darkness for the Egyptians. Okay, it's a possibility. We see that in verse 20. Or fourth, it would seem highly unlikely the Egyptians would enter the sea knowing God had parted it for his people. I mean, anyway, I, I just, it's, it's amazing to me, you know. But uh, now, it's also possible that the Egyptians appear to be guided only by the, uh, the Israelites, okay? Um, the Egyptians were in hot pursuit. Um, all they see in their sights is, I want to go get the Israel, Israelites, and we're going to go get them. Um, so wherever the Israelites went, the Egyptians went. You know, they just kind of followed them wherever they went. And it wouldn't be too difficult to kind of look down at tracks and see two to three million pairs of feet all over the place, or probably more than that, right? So the Egyptians were concentrating on the object of their pursuit, not the scenery that's going on around them. They're not, they're not paying attention. Now, it's also possible that since the seabed became dry ground, there would be no evidence the Egyptians were in the middle of the sea. Okay? Remember that the, if it's dry, and if all, if all they're seeing is Egypt, I mean, uh, Israelites in front of them, they're not paying attention to the scenery. It's just tunnel vision, right? That's all they see. So let's just say that if by chance any of these speculations are correct, you can imagine the horror of the Egyptians when they finally realized where they were right? All of a sudden, they stop, and they're like, oh, oh man. <laughs> now, the other possibility is the Egyptians knowingly pursued the Israelites into the Red Sea. It's incredible to think that the most powerful, well-trained army in the world at that time could make such a blunder and march straight into a perfect ambush with any hesitation whatsoever. So the only explanation really is really given to us is, is that they, their hearts were supernaturally hardened, okay? They were so hardened. They were so full of, you know, hate, revenge. I'm going to get those Israelites that none of this other stuff really uh, mattered to them. They were oblivious to it. In Exodus 14, 17, as God said to Moses, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. 
Now in the morning watch, known to be from 2 a.m. till dawn, God looked down from the pillar of fire and brought confusion to the Egyptian troops. And in verse 24, so this was brought about by causing the wheels of their chariots to just fall off, either to swerve or to sink into the, uh, to the sand. Uh, maybe it was starting to get wet at this point. We don't really know, but it just says that this is what God did. He confused them, right? In Psalm 77, we have a description that seems to inform us that the occasion for the confusion was a thunderstorm. Listen, it says, The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they were afraid. The depths also trembled, and the clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind, and the lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. Assuming the Egyptians did not know they were entering the sea, can you imagine now these, these charioteers, they see this first bolt of lightning, and this bolt of lightning lights up the sky, revealing that around them is these towering walls of water. And now what do they do is it's a little too late. Okay, it's a little too late, and they probably realize that they've been trapped, they, they've been ambushed, and they're going to try to retreat. All right, so they try to retreat, return back to the shore where they entered the sea, and instead they are plunged headlong into the waters. Okay? And at daybreak, God instructs Moses again to lift up his staff over the sea, and this time the waters of the Red Sea come thundering down on them. So for those of you guys that are surfers, you know what this feels like, right? When you've got a huge wave that comes thundering down on top of you. Can you imagine stories of water just falling on top of you? And this is what's going on. So the, the sea closed up on the Egyptians so that verse 28 says that every one of them drowned. There was not one that lived, not one that survived. And in contrast, the Israelites passed through the sea on dry ground. And it says that they safely reached the other side. In verse 29. So the Red Sea became the instrument of Israel's deliverance and of the Egyptians' judgment. Israel witnessed again the power of God and came to a deeper appreciation of not only God and his power, but also of Moses as the leader that God had appointed for them and through whom God's power was manifested in a mighty way. And we see that in verse 31. This is an awesome account of God's grace and his mercy for his people. Just like he displays for you and I, awesome grace and mercy. But it's also judgment for those who oppose God and those who mess with Israel. So in closing, guys, what Red Sea are you facing tonight? What, what Pharaoh is intimidating you and striking fear in your life? And what is it that's enslaving you or, or has you in bondage? God is bigger than all these problems. God is bigger. We sing a song here, you know, how big our God is. God is big, bigger than we can imagine. He's just waiting for us to allow him to work, to fight on our behalf. So we need to surrender him tonight. Just surrender. Give it all to him because he desires to show us how great and mighty is our God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, we just thank you for this account of the Red Sea, Lord. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, just how big you are, Lord. Father, we ask you now that for any of the guys here, Lord, their families, 
Maybe their wives are downstairs, Lord, that you would just speak to them about how big you are and the issues that they face and the trials they're going through. Maybe things are going well in their life, Lord, but trials will come. Father, instill in them, Father, your, your peace. Help them to understand that you are always present, Lord. Father, help them to know that all you want from them and all you want from me is just to be still and know that you're a God. Thank you again, Father, for your word and your scriptures, Father, for just teaching us, humbling us, making us more like you every day. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks.